exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. MSU Community, and now, tonight's exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, today at the Eli Broad College of Business, visiting with Ken Boyer, who is a professor of operations management in the Broad School's highly acclaimed supply chain management program. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Russ. So you and some colleagues have recently completed a paper uh, called Critical Issues in Internet Retailing, and I think a lot of us do some of our retailing on, on the Internet these days. What what prompted the paper, and what are some of the critical issues you guys found? Well, what prompted the paper was uh, some work I'd done with some colleagues, uh, Tim Lasseter at the Darden School of the University of Virginia, Elliot Urbinovich at Arizona State University, and Diane Mollenkopf at the University of Tennessee. All of us have been interested in sort of the operational issues behind delivering goods that you order on the Internet. And this grew out of uh, some of the early days of internet retailing in the mid-1990s when companies like Amazon, eToys, Webvan, and Pets.com were getting a lot of headlines and a lot of money. And there were a lot of operational challenges. Of course, Amazon is the only one of those four still alive today. Uh, each of the other ones has an interesting story. Webvan uh, raised $1 billion in startup capital and reached a high market cap of $7.9 billion, but eventually went bankrupt in 2001, while only selling $350 million worth of, on, of groceries delivered to customer homes. Uh, similarly, Pets.com sold $13.4 million worth of goods, but had a price of uh, that were, were sold for only $5.8 million. They eventually also went bankrupt, uh, they're most notoriously known for their sock puppet. In the Super Bowl of 2000, they had an ad for uh, selling pet food online, delivered to your home, and they had a sock puppet doing the selling. So essentially, we got into this research because we're all interested in operational issues, and we looked at some of the irrational exuberance that went on behind some of the uh, early Internet retailers and we looked at it as a good positive growth area but we didn't understand some of the decisions that were made so talk about a little bit more what you mean when you say operational issues okay that that i saved one of the companies to talk about e-toys is an example also well known in the late nineties for christmas of nineteen ninety eight they had one million toy orders that had to be booked by december tenth to be delivered by christmas Obviously, delivering the orders by Christmas is fairly important. You want your kids, uh, your spouse, your brothers and sisters to get their presents on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve. Unfortunately, they only were able to deliver 90% of the Christmas packages, leaving over 100,000 people unsatisfied with their service. So you can guess what happened. E-Toys ended up going out of business. That's an operational issue. They did not plan their inventory correctly. They did not plan with their delivery services, FedEx, UPS, Airborne, and so on. Uh, we're looking at issues behind what goes on after you get the customer order. The customer order comes on online, goes into a database or something at the company. Marketing is very important. Getting the order is very important. But it seemed like a lot of these early companies ignored or gave 
uh, less attention than necessary to some of the issues behind actually getting the product to the customer's door. So talk a little bit more, Ken Boyer, about how Internet retailing or e-commerce has evolved to where we are today. Okay, well, the fourth company that I wanted to mention is Amazon, and we'll be coming back to Amazon. Obviously, most people today know a little bit about Amazon or have shopped with Amazon. Amazon, during the same time period, the mid-90s, was a small operation founded by Jeff Bezos, and it started off with very spartan facilities. It has grown to the point where they have over 17 distribution centers around the world. And so we'll talk about the evolution of supply networks and physical distribution structure. To, to sort of summarize where the industry has gone, uh, it has started off with a lot of these failures and challenges in the mid to late 1990s. It has grown to this point. There was a retrenchment starting in about 2002-2003 where Internet sales now account for over $100 billion a year. And they have grown for over 20% per year each of the last five years. This is a, the only growing area of, of retailing. Uh, walk-in store sales are only growing at 2 to 3% per year. So what we've seen is basically a movement from what was called pure play internet retailers. So Amazon is a pure play. They don't have walk-in stores to what is now generally labeled multi-channel retailers. So companies like Office Depot or Staples or uh, Land's End or Sears that have existing stores but also sell things online. And for example, to illustrate some of the successes of internet retailing, both Office Depot and Staples, large uh, office supplies retailers had over $3 billion a year of sales that were placed online for delivery to customer homes or businesses last year. Very few people are aware of, of these very sort of traditional businesses that are doing very well online selling over the Internet. Obviously, it's here to stay then. Uh, yes, it's here to stay, and, and this is my colleagues and I have been researching in this area for uh, between five and ten years and I don't think any of the experts in the field ever really doubted that the internet was going to have a large impact on both retailing manufacturing and business it's just taken companies a while to work through the best ways to do these things makes sense Ken Boyer is with us on MSU today on impact radio and Spartan podcast so Ken in your most recent article in Sloan management review it's again called critical issues in internet retailing you and your co-authors describe backroom or operations challenges behind internet commerce tell us a little bit more about these critical issues well we decided to focus on because of some of the research that we've done over the last three to five years as part of our last mile supply chain center three critical issues the first one is managing returns when you order online and something is wrong with the product not necessarily wrong with the product maybe you just don't like it maybe you changed your mind you need to return it so managing returns to create customer loyalty and manage expenses is a critical issue our second issue is physical distribution structure should you should a company have one facility for shipping orders many facilities for shipping orders should they do it themselves in-house or should they outsource to a third-party provider and then our third issue is where do you deploy inventory across your network if you have multiple facilities 
that means you have multiple places you can hold each SKU or stock keeping unit and you need to make decisions that relate to both customer service and cost. So what we'll do is talk in detail about each of these three critical issues. First one is returns. Ordering online offers some, some very strong advantages, but one of the disadvantages is when you have a product to return, it's less convenient than taking it to the store in some ways. Uh, returns rates run from anywhere from 1% of what's sold to 30% of what's sold for uh, mostly apparel retailers. So companies that sell apparel or shoes online have many, many challenges. Companies like Zappos or Shudini that sell shoes online can have returns rates running from 25 to 30%. Other companies, including companies like Office Depot, uh, Staples, have returns rates that are much smaller between 1% and 5%. So one of the challenges is how do you manage these things? And we like to portray this as a balance between uh, two approaches. Make it easy for the customer, take everything that can be returned. And advantages to that include you can increase your customer sales, you develop a trust level with the customer, you encourage customers to try new things. This is very important in an industry like shoes. Why would you buy shoes online? That seems counterintuitive to a lot of people at first because you can't try them on. But the advantage of buying shoes online is you can get a much bigger selection because they're ho only holding the inventory in one place. In fact, the founder of Zappos founded the company because in repeated trips to several stores, he couldn't find exactly the shoe he wanted. He could find the right size in the wrong color. He could find the right color in the wrong size. And he decided there had to be a better way. So back to the returns. If you take everything, the, the disadvantage is you have a very high return rate. It's hard to make money if you pay for shipping a product to the customer, you pay to have the product shipped back, you have to reshelve it on, on, on the shelves in the distribution center, and basically hurts your bottom line tremendously. The, the other problem is there's what we call devil customers. Some customers, not many, a very small percentage, will take advantage of the process. There are people who will order three pairs of shoes at a time because they don't know what size they want to wear. We were told by one company that we worked with, in fact, that they got an order from a, a small shoe retailer in some Midwestern state that what had happened was a customer came in and wanted a specific type of shoe. The retailer didn't have it, so they ordered it from this company, got it shipped to them next day delivery, gave it to the customer, hence creating a happy customer, then returned the shoe to the manufacturer, or ordered the shoe from the manufacturer, and when they got the shoe back, returned it to the internet retailing company that sold the shoe in the first place for a refund of their money. That's not the type of customer you'd like to have. So the problem with the, the make it easy approach is that it may end up costing you money. The other approach to, to returns is don't take anything. Obviously, the advantages to that are it cuts the returns rate, it simplifies your supply chain because more of your items are going one direction out to the customer, which is really the direction we want them to go. It cuts off some of those devil customers. But the disadvantage is it loses sales. It also is likely to upset what we call the opposite of a devil customer, which is an angel customer. An angel customer is a customer who's very loyal to the firm, who buys repeatedly, 
And essentially what we ought to be doing with an angel customer is essentially bending over backwards to make sure that their transaction goes well. Hence, our recommendation is that we will see more of the balancing between the two where you make it somewhat easy to take returns, somewhat hard. And you look very carefully at your policies to cut off some of those devil customers and limit what can be returned. Now what about the physical distribution? Uh, the, the second critical issue that we examine in our paper is the physical distribution uh, structure of the network. So what we examine is we look at whether companies should have a single facility or multiple facilities. Uh, so for comparison, um, an example of a company with multiple facilities is Amazon. Amazon's very well known to a lot of customers. What's not known is some of the statistics behind how Amazon runs. One of the big advantages of Amazons is that they offer a very, very wide variety of inventory. So, for example, um, Amazon carries 10 million book titles, 50 times that of a typical border superstore, and 400 times that of a mall-based bookstore. They can do this because they're only holding the inventory in a few locations. But while Amazon has uh, these 10 million titles, they're not all carried at the same facility. So Amazon has, I believe, 17 different fulfillment centers. What will happen is a very widely selling title, uh, like John Grisham's The Innocent Man, which is a recent bestseller, will be carried at multiple fulfillment centers to be close to customers. The advantage there is fast delivery, quick turnover of inventory. A lesser selling title that might only sell 50 copies a year might be held at one fulfillment center. An even lesser selling title, Amazon can afford to carry something that only sells two or three or four copies a year, but they'll only carry it either at one fulfillment center or they'll hold it at uh, a book uh, wholesaler that supplies bookstores. And what they'll do is they'll place an order and either have it sent directly from the wholesaler to the customer. So Amazon is an example of a company that has multiple facilities and does their own fulfillment. They're very good at that. eBags, on the other hand, is, a is an example of a company that has multiple facilities but has outsourced it. eBags gets a lot of their bags from companies like uh, Samsonite and other luggage manufacturers. They don't ever, ever actually take ownership of the bags. Instead, they place orders, they send them electronically to Samsonite and other manufacturers and have those companies drop ship to their customers. So eBags is an example of a company that has multiple facilities but outsources things. The other way that you can deploy physical uh, distribution structure is to have a single facility. So Pet 1-800-PETMEDS is a, a large company that sells pet food medicine online. They have all of their operations in a single facility in southern Florida. The advantage of this is that they can control uh, the, the, the medicine that goes to your pets. And it's not as strictly regulated as human pharmaceuticals, but it is still something that they have to have strict control over. So the advantage that they have is they can control things, they can oversee their fulfillment and so on. So they have in-house fulfillment. Our final example is a company that has single facility, but they outsource it to a third party. Linens and Things is a major retailer of linens and things, obviously. Um, 
they have a single facility that a third party runs because this is not their core business. Their core business is running stores. By offering things online, they can offer some of the harder to find items. If you go into a store and you're looking for something that they don't have, they can afford to stock it in one distribution center that's run by an outsourcing company, but they don't have to have it at every store. So that's an example of the optimal net network structure. And one of the big lessons there is that you have to carefully choose and look at what type of structure you want to have and that things evolve over time. Earlier I mentioned that Amazon started off with one facility. It was basically a very empty warehouse and they've obviously grown and changed over time to the point where they have 17 now in multiple countries. We're talking about critical issues in internet retailing with Ken Boyer from MSU's Eli Broad College of Business. Now the third critical issue, Ken, deploy inventory to profitability to meet customers' needs. Someone in the supply chain has to store the actual items, but who? Well, again, when I talked earlier about Amazon, that's also an example of putting inventory in the right place. And you can look at the annual reports for Amazon, Borders, Barnes & Nobles, and one of the interesting statistics is that even though Amazon offers 10 million titles to Borders or Barnes & Nobles, 200,000 roughly, their inventory turns are roughly 20 per year versus Barnes & Nobles, which are three, three per year. And they do that by deploying inventory to the right locations. Again, the Grisham novel that sells very highly goes to almost every facility. The Harry Potter book coming out this summer will be at multiple facilities. Amazon, I'm sure, has plans in place for delivering that book at midnight and dropping it in the mail. The, the less selling books will be only held at a few locations. Another example would be a company like Circuit City. Circuit City deals with different types of goods. And one of the examples that we look at is big screen TVs, a widescreen, say, 40-inch uh, LCD television versus a camcorder. Both of them are very expensive items, but what companies really need to look at is some of the physical characteristics behind their goods. The widescreen TV is not something that can be sold profitably on, over the Internet very well and it's hard to deploy that at a centralized distribution center. So that might be something that they offer only in the stores or they hold an inventory at the stores. On the other hand, a camcorder, even though it's very expensive, is a fairly compact product. It's much easier to bundle that up and ship it through the mail, through UPS or FedEx, and so they can afford to hold that at multiple facilities or center. actually what they want to do is centralize that at one facility to uh, increase their inventory turnover and then they can ship it out through the mail. The other thing is that what a lot of the multi-channel retailers have done, companies like Office Depot, Home Depot, Sears, uh, Walmart, just about any major retailer, Best Buy, is hold inventory at a distribution center and what many of these companies will do is if you go into the store and can't find a particular item they can walk you now to a kiosk or give you their online website and have you order it and they generally will ship for free to your home the product that you're looking for and so the idea is to capture you before you walk out of that store and go to a competitor and they can afford to do this because the these low selling items are only held at one location instead of at 400, 500, what, however many stores.
So Ken, what opportunities are there within these challenges, both for the businesses and the consumers? Well, obviously for consumers, the internet has created a, a very dynamic marketplace. So for consumers, it's created a wide range of choice. So there's what's called the long tail effect, which is basically that looking at a statistical curve in the past, what happened is we got access to the products that 99% of the world wanted. Now we're getting access to the things to the right of the tail, the, the last 1%. So it's really increased the range of choice for customers. For businesses, it's made it much easier to manage that long tail and to reach people in a diverse range of locations. So for example, if you look at some of what's gone on uh, with many of the retailers, it's given access to international markets. It's given access to a company in pick a state throughout the United States. So what it's done is really increase access from, from small retailers. There are a lot of small retailers that are doing very well. And then it's increased the ability of retailers to offer more items. So look down the road now, Ken. How do you see e-commerce and Internet retailing evolving in the future? What's next? Well, what's next is many things. One thing is with electronic items, the, the leading categories for Internet retailing are things like books, music, computers, computer software. We're, we're entering a whole new world where virtual things will, will explode. So for example, this podcast or video or whatever that doesn't need a tangible product to be shipped, there's just an infinite array of possibilities. The other opportunities are there are tremendous opportunities for customizing products. So for example, there are a lot of companies out there now that will take a photograph and put it on a shirt, put it on a coffee mug or whatever. Uh, th there's a combination of the digital media like digital photographs and customization of products and there's just going to be continued growth in a variety of areas. Uh, another example would be Land's End custom pants. So Land's End started offering five or six years ago. You place your order online, you give your physical dimensions through a, a, a fairly nice ordering interface and you get your custom pants. So for example, I happen to be six foot six. I order a lot of my pants on Land's End because I can get them custom fit. So there, there are just many opportunities out there for both companies and customers to take advantage of the internet in placing orders. So Ken, is there anything important I've left out or just some final thoughts you'd like to make on these critical issues in e-commerce? I'd just like to wrap up that, uh, that from a company perspective, it's important to do all the functions well. Marketing is very important, finance, taking the order via IT. You cannot obviously neglect the supply chain and the operational components. That's what we've been talking about here. From a customer's perspective, I think we'll see an ever-increasing, at least for the next five to ten years, rate of sales on the internet, particularly as the, the, the younger consumers today grow up who have had access. One of the big trends is mobile commerce, ordering on cell phones, ordering on Palm Pilots, Blackberries, that sort of thing. So the companies have to be aware of these trends and continue to be innovative and dynamic in adapting to new opportunities. Now, Ken, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think there's a website with more information on what you and your colleagues do. Can you give us that address? Sure. Uh, the website is www.lastmilesupplychaincenter.org, and you can find previous research papers and 
information on our return study and some various other links. Uh, for example, we did some uh, research for several years on online orders for home delivery of groceries, and there's a list of grocers around the world on that website. That's Ken Boyer, who's been visiting with us on MSU today. He's a professor of operations management in the Eli Broad College of Business at Michigan State University. And this is MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. I'm Russ White, and for more information, you can visit us on the web at msutoday.com. You're listening to Friday Night Insight on the Impact 89FM. I'm Mike Hogan. You just heard from Russ White. He was talking to Professor Ken Boyer of the Eli Broads College of Business, specializing in operations management. He was discussing uh, Internet retailing and how it's evolved and where it's headed in the future. Uh, coming up, Russ White is going to be talking to Rhoda Weiss. She's the chair and CEO of the Public Relations Society of America, and she's also an alumnus of Michigan State University. She's going to be talking about the state of the public relations field and where it's headed. Uh, but right now, Russ White is going to talk to Provost Kim Wilcox and about the positions he's recently filled in his office. Stay around for more Friday Night Insight. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. I'm Russ White, happy to be back in the company of Michigan State's Chief Academic Officer, better known as the Provost, Dr. Kim Wilcox. Provost Wilcox, welcome back to the program. Great to be back, Russ. Let's talk a little bit about of several of the new hires you've made, which will just lead us into sort of some of the things you've been working on and concentrating on in, in this important role. One of the new hires, Randy Hillard, is the Associate Provost for Human Health Affairs. What is that and, and why now? Um, it turns out, oh, 15, 20 years ago, the university had someone in a similar position, but uh, that position had been, op- had been empty for a number of years. And as I think most of the listeners know, we're under a great deal of transformation in our health programs. Our College of Human Medicine is expanding its student body, about doubling the size, with a a primary base in Grand Rapids, uh, an alliance with Spectrum Health Center, St. Mary's Health, uh, Van Andel Research Institute, which we believe will transform the College of Human Medicine. Our uh, College of Osteopathic Medicine is similarly expanding into southeast Michigan, uh, looking to double the size of our student body in response to the physician shortage in the state. And uh, that's an attempt for us to not only buoy the physician uh, uh, group in the state, but also to enhance our our already strong presence in uh, the Detroit area. We have right now medical students at more than 14 hospitals in the Detroit area. So those are our major expansions underway. We have, uh, in addition, begun serious discussions here in Lansing with Sparrow and with Ingham about uh, enhancing our role and, and visibility, uh, essentially our profile here in, in Lansing. And as everyone knows, we have a very strong nursing program and there's a nursing shortage in the state. Uh, at the same time, there's a, a, a growing appreciation for the need for biotech as a part of our economy. Michigan State's well positioned to, to play a role. We have some very strong programs in chemistry, in genetics, uh, but we've lacked the breadth of scientific expertise to carry those discoveries into the real world of pharmaceutical development and, and treatments. So those and many other things point to a time when there's a lot to be done at Michigan State University. Uh, Randy Hillard will come and serve in a leadership role to help coordinate, not spearhead, we have deans in place who are spearheading many of these efforts, but to coordinate these across across the various colleges. Uh, the impact will touch literally every college on campus. 
And then Doug Eastry, uh, you've tapped to be the Associate Provost for Undergraduate Education and Dean of Undergraduate Studies. How about Doug's role? Um, I was fortunate uh, last year to recruit June Hewitt uh, to the role of Senior Associate Provost. June had been the Dean of Undergraduate Studies and Associate Provost for Undergraduate Education for several years and had just done a superb job of helping the campus rethink the uh, pri its priority for undergraduate education. Uh, June, though, was so talented, I recruited her to, to serve in a leadership role here in this office and has just done a marvelous job, which left the position open uh, that she had filled. Doug Eastry is uh, the former director of the Medical Technology Program, Clinical Laboratory Sciences Program here on campus, and uh, has been an associate dean in natural science for a number of years working in undergraduate education. So he was a natural uh, to replace June in, in the dean's role. Uh, and lots of, lots, are, lots of things are happening there as well. Uh, the academic governance system just endorsed the creation of a Council on Liberal Learning. And the Council on Liberal Learning is uh, envisioned as a group from, with faculty from across several colleges who would think about the, ex the experience of our freshmen and sophomores and think about how best to create curricular experiences, classes, but other experiences as well, that will help them achieve what we believe to be some of our fundamental goals, those that have to do with uh, quantitative literacy, those that have to do with, with written and verbal skills, those that have to do with critical thinking, the kinds of uh, important uh, additions that are part of any good college education, but sometimes aren't easily identified in a specific course. So uh, Doug has hit the ground running on, on that very important initiative. He's also working closely with our Dean of Graduate Studies and with our Dean of the Honors College in looking at ways to fund students. Uh, so he's on the, on the fundraising trail looking to raise scholarship dollars to help recruit the very best students and support those who are already here at Michigan State. And then Terry Curry is the new Associate Provost for Academic Human Resources. I'm guessing that's going to be somewhat of a challenge to step into that role that Bob Banks filled so well for so long. Bittersweet. Um, I don't know of anyone who has spent any time on this campus who doesn't personally know Bob Banks. Bob has spent over 25 years in the role of Associate Provost for Academic Human Resources, which for our listeners, that's the person who is responsible for the human resources for the faculty. He's the one who helps appoint, recruit faculty members. He's there to help assist in the promotion processes, deals with challenges when we have difficulties in, in the, the faculty ranks. Uh, he's the go-to guy on personnel for all the faculty and academic staff, nearly 5,000 people here at Michigan State. Um, and he's beloved. Uh, he was a for, he's a former dean of James Madison College, so he he uh, has roots in the community far beyond the, his time as associate provost, but truly beloved. Um, but it's time for him to retire, and the campus is going through a series of celebrations of Bob's career. The the last one uh, week from Friday, actually, for those who are available to come to the Wharton Center and hear a, a jazz concert in Bob's to Bob's tribute. Um, Terry Curry. Uh, after a, a ser search on campus, was identified as the person to succeed Bob. Uh, Terry is the director of our School of Labor and Industrial Relations. He, his world has always been labor and industrial relations. He understands the issues of human resources. He's an expert in the field. Uh, but more importantly, I think he comes to the job with a perspective and a style that's going to be just perfect, I think. He, he is thoughtful. He is a careful listener. Uh, he's decisive, but he's not in your face about it. 
um, he'll be a great addition to the staff, and, and I've got nothing but positive comments from people about that selection. Dr. Wilcox, you've also hired several deans since you've been at MSU. A couple that come to mind, Satish Udpa in engineering and Steve Esquith to lead the new residential college in the arts and humanities. But is there a theme that's been running through your dean selections? Uh, interesting question. Uh, I took the job just at the time when several deans were leaving, retiring, resigning, stepping down for different reasons. I, attribute, I didn't attribute it to me, <laughs> but maybe I should have. Um, Many people at the time commented, well, that gives you a great opportunity to kind of recraft the leadership team at the university. I was ambivalent, to be honest with you. Um, I, uh, myself being new, I thought having some people around me who were experienced and knew the system and lived here for a while would be a benefit. Uh, now, a year and a half later, we've uh, recruited, uh, I think, about eight new deans. Of, that's about half of them. And um, I've come to appreciate the opportunity that it really was. Uh, I've tried, in, in every case, to find someone who was strongly supported by the faculty in the college. Um, they're the experts on, on what they need for leadership in many ways. But also so, uh, someone who was um, looking ahead, not backward. Uh, universities are just big pots of, of opportunities. There's nothing here but good news if you want to look for it. And so I want f deans who are eager to take on those, those opportunities, look at the ha glass half full, never half empty. I think we've done that all around. I've also looked for people who were independent um, and were ready to take charge. Uh, a dean is the, the lead academic officer in, in the college. They're the people who make decisions about the composition of the faculty, uh, the nature of, of the college, what it will be known for. Um, you know, it, it isn't the case that uh, every college grows up and magically has an expert area in supply chain management or in nuclear physics. Those things happen over time with leadership, and those areas of strength then attract students. It's the dean who makes those strategic decisions. Um, I want someone in each of the dean's chairs who is independent and able to make decisions and not looking to be kind of backed up on, on individual questions, and I think we've done that as well. Let's talk a little bit about academic governance and what has come out of there recently, and maybe even a little bit about what that is. I think some people don't always understand what academic governance is, but what what has been going on there lately? Uh, universities are interesting places. Um, we talk about shared governance, and usually what that means is the relationship between the governing board, uh, the administration, and the faculty. Uh, each has a set of prescribed rights and responsibilities uh, for running the university. So, for instance, uh, the faculty are generally accorded uh, the right to set the curriculum and the right to, uh, to, to determine policies for promotion and tenure, that is, deciding who is a member of, of their faculty rank. Uh, the administration generally is responsible for the operations, making sure the trains run on time and the streets get plowed, and for developing a budget uh, to present to the board and for then uh, prudent use of the, of the resources. The administration is charged with setting the general directions and policies of the university for, for approving the budget and for um, working with the legislature to craft a role for the uh, university and the state. So the, the academic governance system then at Michigan State University is a faculty-led system, but includes uh, wide participation by students and a role for the administration as well. 
The governance system this year, again, has just created a council on liberal, liberal, liberal learning, which I think is a great uh, step forward. Um, they have approved and have forwarded to the board for review this week, in fact, a policy on uh, gender identity. They've uh, been key in approving uh, two new colleges. We have just recently moved the School of Music to college status, which means really that is now independent from the College of Arts and Letters. That's a, a decision that was made after a year of review, consultation, and uh, adjustments in the proposal that as it worked its way through the committees and, and uh, forums of faculty governance. And similarly, we're just in the process now of having a discussion about Lyman Briggs School of, of Natural Science, which at one time was a college, a residential college on campus, had been moved to within the College of Natural Science as a school, and now we're discussing in the governance system uh, re recreating it as a college. Provost Wilcox, Boldness by Design is a major initiative that you and President Simon have undertaken. Can you update us on where that is? Um, boldness by Design, as we've talked before, Russ, Boldness by Design is a seven-year uh, window uh, where the, wherein the President has challenged us to transform the university. And uh, I many times get asked, so what's the latest, what latest piece of Boldness by Design? And I always struggle in all candor simply because boldness by design is happening everywhere all over the campus er all the time. Uh, if we're going to transform Michigan State University, it won't be the provost and five or six or seven task forces. It won't be the president and some speeches. It will be each of us doing things differently. So what does that mean for us today? We've, we've made some real uh, changes in how we manage our waste and recycling on campus. We are rethinking how we teach uh, integrative studies on campus, particularly in the social sciences. We are talking about developing a signature pedagogy for a land-grant university in the 21st century. We are looking at new ways of managing budgets. Uh, so it's everything from the classroom to the ledger uh, to the laboratory that will be, I believe, new uh, by 2012, that's the window that the president has given us. Uh, and the goal again is by 2012 to be a model for what a university should be in the 21st century, just as we were in the 20th century as a land grant model. As the semester winds down, we head into the summer. Or are there just some some things you're thinking about? Or I, I like to close with maybe sort of a broader question for you, even as it relates to higher ed in general. Just what are you what are you thinking about these days? Really, what I like to think about is Michigan State University in the year 2025. I, I want everything I do today and tomorrow to be headed toward a better Michigan State University in the year 2025. The decisions we make at a university are ones that, that last for a long, long time. We recruit new faculty with great expertise. They might be here 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, that's a, a forward-looking uh, responsibility. It's the case that 100 years ago, the, the majors on campus looked very different from the ones today. We don't have animal husbandry anymore. Uh, we don't have home economics anymore. We now have nanoscience and material science. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to be here in 2025, but I want to keep trying to do the best I can to prepare us for that. Uh, and that's, for me, the, the most exciting part of being provost of Michigan State. Sir, thanks again for sharing your time and insights. Uh, my pleasure, Russ. Always fun. That's Dr. Kim Wilcox, Provost, Chief Academic Officer at Michigan State University. And for a lot more on the web of what he's working on, the website is provost.msu. 
www.spartanradio.edu. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. You can learn more about us at msutoday.com. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. I'm Russ White, joined today by Rhoda Weiss, who is an MSU alumna, but happens to be CEO and chair of the Public Relations Society of America, uh, better known as PRSA. Uh, Rhoda, great to have you on the program. Thanks. It's wonderful to be home. Well, let's start out with maybe a basic question, but one I think a lot of people really wouldn't know the answer to. What is public relations in today's world, and, and how does it differ from publicity? Well, public relations is really the strategic business function in any organization that identifies who the public's, who your publics are and puts together strategies and delivers those strategies to reach your stakeholders, whether they be internal, external audience. It's it's much broader than it used to be when it started many years ago. Many years ago, it started as publicity, and now we're doing issues management. Uh, we're reaching, we're doing board relations, we're doing research, and so many different things for organizations. Uh, pretty much have a seat at the chief executive table and looking at trends and issues that may affect an organization, and then helping the organization put together a communications plan to reach its target audiences. You know, the term I learned in my graduate work here at MSU and PR, that it sounds corny and academic, but I'll bet you're going to like it. Two-way symmetrical communication is how they described the ideal role for PR. Actually, it's multi-symmetrical now, and in an age of YouTube, in an age of Second Life, in an age of... Um, it's changed so much that multiple the, the issue with public relations is that we need to realize that multiple media maximizes messages uh, to to really do our jobs well we have to understand the old media the new media and the next media how to use those media um, not necessarily media relations but how do we reach um, young people how do we reach generation X and generation Y and boomers and older people our messages are really tailored differently and each of them are looking at different uh, medium so how does PR and maybe how should PR function in a modern organization today and, and help that organization achieve its goals? Well, typically what we're seeing now with the public relations professionals is that typically they are part of the executive management suite. They're advising the executives, they're executives themselves, and they're also advising executives of what 
to put in the communications plan and often the marketing plan as well in how to reach the audiences and how to meet the objectives and goals that are set out that year and long term for the organization. Is it to increase sales? Is it to raise funds? Is it to get more people interested in what you're doing? Whatever it is, public relations is really that function that looks at, that does the research, that comes up with the plan. Uh, that comes up with the messaging, delivers those messages, and then goes back to evaluate how those messages were delivered, if they were delivered well, and what the next steps are. Rhoda Weiss, then, what is the state of public relations today? Has it attained that permanent seat at the executive table? I think it increasingly is. Many of us have those seats at the executive table. One of the interesting things is that public relations is one of the fastest growing fields. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, public relations is growing, uh, will grow 44% within the next eight years. It's one of the hot jobs that's listed. It's also becoming uh, one of the jobs that really is paying, um, one of the, the, the handful of jobs that uh, were a good number of its professionals are, are reaching into the six figures. It's a job, too, that people are seeing that are increasingly being used by governments and organizations to make changes within their communities and within the world. Uh, it's open. What's interesting, too, is that public relations majors across the country now um, when you compare it to journalism majors and to advertising majors, there are three times as many public relations majors. So it is the hottest field, and it is only growing, and the job opportunities, every organization has a public relations professional or many public relations professionals as part of that organization. And we just see tremendous growth and interest. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. Rhoda Weiss with us, who leads the Public Relations Society of America, better known as PRSA. So tell us more about what PRSA is and what its mission is. The goal of PRSA is really to advance the profession and the professional. Uh, we have 32,000 members right now that are working in public relations across the United States, around the globe, in many different sectors, in every imaginable sector. And our goal is professional development, to educate and um, offer courses online in every venue possible so that our members can learn more about new technologies and about strategies in public relations and strategies in business. We're also uh, very much committed to diversity, to diversifying the profession as well as diversifying the communities in which we serve. And we're also interested in advocacy. It is very important that we advocate not only for this profession and the professional, but also are out there talking about issues. A good example recently is a crisis that has been that many corporations are facing by their missteps, the issues of Don Imus, the issues of many people and the crisis they face. And we are out there talking to the media and talking to organizations about this is how to avoid the crisis from happening. And secondly, if you reach this crisis, these are the things you need to do. But most of the time, crises don't have to happen. If you really have a solid crisis communications plan that also looks at operational issues and has those red flags up, crises don't need to happen. Um, nearly all can be avoided. You've touched on it, Rhoda, but talk a little bit more about how technology has impacted the field. Technology is so exciting. We've gone from uh, 15 years ago, the CNN effect, when we had CNN, which was an amazing effect. We could 24-7, we could find out what was going on in the world. And the CNN effect had a great and very positive impact on the world uh, in terms of um, 
dissuading election fraud um, in countries that, that were very hard to get to. Uh, CNN was there, and now it's the YouTube effect. Fifteen years later, everything is instantaneous. Just think that there are, on YouTube, there's 70,000 new videos each day. So while, you know, some people say these are like kids lip syncing, these are also used by Al-Qaeda, they're used by terrorists, they're also used to um, improve democracy and change democracy, make a difference in people's lives and bring attention to global warming. Uh, the opportunities are amazing, and if we are not using those new technologies, such as YouTube, such as Second Life, many corporations are now having their headquarters on Second Life, uh, and even Facebook, and all of these things that people are using, if we're not using those, then we're missing out on a great segment. Uh, Microsoft has said by 2012 that almost all of their communications will be done uh, by te technological uh, things that may not be the print we hold. I think print newspapers will still be around, but uh, if most people are like me, they're reading that online. They're reading the print newspaper online. They're watching the news online. Uh, it's going to uh, change the world dramatically, and it's pretty exciting. The whole issue of citizen journalism is, is very exciting, except when um, we get uh, so many things that are untrue um, or issues that where people are attacked unnecessarily, but um, I think we'll give it all up um, and just for the opportunity of learning uh, so much every day that we never had exposure to. What are the key issues then and challenges facing the field of public relations today? I think uh, the challenges include technology. How do we learn all these things? Um, also the expectations, because public relations has really stood out as a critical part of executive management, when they give us dollars, they also want to know uh, what did we get for those dollars? You know, what did the, the return on investment? There's the issue of, um, with the profession changing so dramatically, how can we ensure that people that are in the profession have the skills and the tools, and that's what we're trying to do with PRSA. We have hundreds of programs every year. We're communicating with our members on a daily basis of the issues and trends. One of the biggest challenges is how do we keep up with everything going on, and we've got to read a lot and talk a lot and listen and look at these forms of media that some people may think are not going to go anywhere, and I promise you that they will go far, whether it be YouTube or Second Life. And the new one, you know, by 2012, we believe almost everything is going to be done by phone. You'll be reading the news on phone. You'll be shopping on phone, um, making dates on phone. Whatever you want to do by phone, it's it's going to by just uh, text messaging and, and the video capabilities. And how do you keep up with it all? I'm not sure, but we have no choice because we have to, we represent our organizations, and we may have to make sure our organizations are communicating as well as they can be. You've sort of touched on this throughout the conversation, Rhoda, but where is the field headed in the future, and, and how do you see it evolving in the years ahead? The exciting thing about the future is that we have so many students studying public relations. When I went to Michigan State in the late 70s, in the late 60s and early 70s, there were no public relations programs. Now we have students coming out of schools all over the country. We have almost 10,000 student members just in PRSA, and I'm sure there's double that number. When you look at, um, at Michigan State, there are 200 students with a specialization in public relations. Cal State Fullerton has 650 students in that area. 
This is a hot area. And the great news is there are jobs. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing that students coming into the field that are much more theoretically based, that have much higher education um, than many of us did in public relations. Many of us were journalism or English or other types or humanities majors. And um, the future is just so exciting because of the growth of the field, the education of the students, and the new technology and everything that we can do. Um, PRSA has this program called Silver Anvils, and every year we honor people for what they've done. And when you look at those programs and see that pe the changes people are making in the communities and in their world and with their companies, it's mind-boggling, and it makes you very proud that you're in this field. How did your time at Michigan State impact you and maybe shape the person you are today? I think it shaped me a lot. I was at Michigan State um, in the late 60s and early 70s, and this was a time of uh, great activism, uh, fighting for women's rights and for choice and for um, uh, civil rights and really trying to make a difference. Um, it's, you know, it's just 30 years since Roots, and while, you know, you had Emmett Till and um, and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks that we all knew about. Roots really changed our lives. And so we've seen all of these changes. And, the, and when I was at Michigan State, they had just started programs on urban studies, which were uh, pretty much African-American history. Um, they had women's studies. So those of us at that time that really got involved in those issues it really did make a difference. Michigan State, too, because I'd come from a pretty small high school in Detroit where not a lot of uh, kids went to college. It opened up my eyes to opportunities. It allowed me to meet people from all over the world, uh, many of whom are still my friends, um, and we're, we're here today with me. And uh, it's it had an enormous impact. I think that Michigan State, I was telling people today, probably had the biggest impact on my life and my career uh, coming from a community that often was you can't get there from here. My professors, my fellow students pretty much said, you can get there from here. It absolutely changed my life. Rhoda, finally, uh, what advice do you have for students today who'd like to get into the field of public relations? Study public relations and also study marketing. Study integrated communications, understand advertising, and, and imp equally importantly, really understand business. To be successful in public relations, you need to understand accounting and business and psychology. B take as many classes as you can and uh, and know that there's uh, take speak speaking classes and make sure you're a sound writer and really understand strategy the world is open to you every organization has public relations and it's a great time to be in PR Rhoda thanks so much for sharing your time and insights with us thank you that's Rhoda Weiss chair and CEO of the Public Relations Society of America and for a lot more about Rhoda and that fine organization the website is PRSA Org. And this has been MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. I'm Russ White, and you can the web at msutoday.com. You're listening to Impact 89FM, Friday Night Insight. I'm your host, Mike Hogan. Uh, you just heard Russ White talking to Rhoda Weiss, the chair and CEO of the Public Relations Society of America. Uh, he's a, She is a Michigan State University alumna. Before that, you heard Russ White talking to Provost Kim Wilcox, and before that, he talked to Professor of Operations Management, uh, Ken Boyer. If you have any uh, information, or if you want more information or to hear those interviews again, you can go to msutoday.msu.edu. Once again, that's msutoday.msu.edu. Right now, though, we're going to hear from 
uh, the Governor Granholm. She's going to be giving her address this week is on stem cell research. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next week for more Friday Night Insight. This is Governor Jennifer Granholm. Stem cell research holds the power to improve the lives of thousands of Michigan citizens, and I've been a consistent advocate of expanding this promising science. Earlier this month, I joined with a number of other governors to urge the U.S. Senate to pass legislation ending federal restrictions on embryonic stem cell research. Now, in our very own Michigan State Legislature, Representative Andy Meisner has reintroduced bills that would lift the decades-old restrictions on embryonic stem cell research in our state. The Michigan laws that restrict stem cell research are outdated from a time before scientists really understood the amazing potential that stem cells hold. Meanwhile, even as the U.S. Congress supports stem cell bills, President Bush maintains that he will reject and veto any legislation expanding stem cell research. With the president and mainstream America disagreeing on this issue, it's critical that we move forward in Michigan. Every day, thousands of families in Michigan struggle as loved ones suffer from Parkinson's disease, juvenile diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, and spinal cord injuries. Embryonic stem cell research has the potential to vastly improve treatment of these conditions and eventually help scientists find life-saving cures. Studying stem cells helps scientists better understand the process that creates the specialized cells that make us what we are. Doctors can use stem cells to generate new tissues and cells for medical therapies. And studying embryonic stem cells can help doctors to pinpoint the causes of some of the most serious medical conditions we face. And not only could stem cell research potentially save lives and prevent disease, it could also attract good jobs and millions of dollars of investment in life science businesses to Michigan. This will allow our world-class university system and research hospitals to take a leading role in this cutting-edge scientific inquiry. Michael J. Fox, who suffers from Parkinson's disease, tells us that, quote, if stem cell research succeeds, there isn't a person in the country who won't benefit or who won't know someone who will. I agree, and that's why we need to act now. Representative Meisner's legislation will pave the way for sensible, safe embryonic stem cell research. The men, women, and children who suffer from conditions for which there is no treatment or cure deserve our help. So do the families and friends who care for and love them. Let's take the lead in Michigan by updating our laws and allowing and encouraging potentially life-saving embryonic stem cell research in our state. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.